Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. This morning, I have a young, dynamic real estate broker who founded his own business, I believe, at the age of 27. Um, and he's been in business basically since he's 21 in the real estate business. I have Ben Blumenthal, who is the CEO and founder of Noah Real Estate. Thank you for being here. Thanks. It's a pleasure. So let's talk about it. How did you decide to get involved with real estate? You graduated Yeshiva University? So my foray into real estate started when I was a young kid. We'd come into the city on Sundays with my parents, and my neck was always craned upwards. And just the energy and excitement of the city and the buildings and the stories and the characters was always something that gripped me. Um, it was very exciting for me, and I always loved to hustle. I was always uh, selling the chocolate bars when I was in elementary school and very entrepreneurial. And what I saw in brokerage was an opportunity to marry a love for sales and real estate. And brokerage, you know, really, as any broker will tell you, has a low barrier to entry for better or for worse. But it's really up to you to make your own luck. And there's no limits as to what you can accomplish if you're willing to work hard and stay focused. And that was something that really drew me out of school. Uh, I had gone down the path um, on more formal investment banking positions and whatnot and uh, just didn't like the rigidity and the uh, hierarchy that existed there. Um, so I found brokerage uh, to be a really compelling opportunity out of school. Now, uh, NOAA Real Estate specializes in properties in Midtown, um, Grand Central, sometimes the Plaza District, uh, maybe going down to 14th Street. How come you specialize in th those markets specifically? So as Bob Knackle famously says, you know, we're in the information business, and when you're a broker, um, there, there needs to be a compounding factor to your work every day. And what I found um, a few years into my career is that the more I would specialize, the better my information would be, the better my angle would be. And what we decided was we were going to take a specialty for representing tenants only um, in Midtown, <clears throat> going down to 14th, 23rd Street, up to 57th Street. And just the information that we were able to track um, was much more current, much more relevant. And we also had a size of prospects, you know, our tenants. Um, we only have about ten to 15,000 people that we're trying to touch a couple times a year to find out where they're at. So the market coverage is much more manageable uh, on the one hand for the prospecting and, and business development. And in terms of execution and being a market authority and that sort of thing, um, you draw a much better compound value from your activities on a daily basis if you have a clear specialty. I mean, we can tell you know within the first 30 seconds if this is a deal for us or not. Okay, with regard to the changes in the Grand Central neighborhood, how important has the Long Island Railroad coming to uh, Grand Central had an effect on tenants? It's been a game changer. It's opened up a new market for people who were really married to the Penn Plaza district. It's posed some challenges for Penn Plaza, which has always been, you know, very heavily populated by people coming in from Long Island. Grand Central now being an option for those people uh, has really been a challenge for Penn Plaza. It's been a plus for Grand Central. But I think zooming out this uh, redevelopment and the rezoning of Grand Central has given a lot of landlords pause as to their future on some of those buildings there. A lot of them are thinking about putting in demolition clauses or redevelopment clauses and uh, really thinking about the highest and best use for the property for the next 10, 20, or 30 years with the air rights that are available and um, what they can do to, to redevelop it. So um, it's put some buildings in limbo, buildings who may have been struggling for other reasons as well. Now, are these A, B, or C buildings? Um, you know, look, it, it's mostly the B buildings that are probably less than uh, 300, 400,000 square feet. I mean, those are the prime candidates, but some of the A buildings are very challenged right now who are looking for a, a path forward. Either they have to reinvent their buildings, uh, you know, redevelop them in some way, or 
um, if there's enough juice to take them down and, and rebuild something similar to what RxR is doing on 42nd Street, to what Boston Properties is doing at the old MTA headquarters, or what you know J.P. Morgan and S.L. Green have done. What do you think of uh, the possibility of the the West Side and the Hudson Yards neighborhood? So I think it's been a resounding success. You know, I think it, the, the the lease up there has been very successful. It was very quick. And um, there's been tremendous demand for new quality product in Manhattan. Um, and uh, I think that's proven that there's really a deep demand willing to pay top dollar for, for new product, whether it's in Hudson Yards, Park Avenue, or 42nd Street. But that's really what the market wants right now. Um, the challenge with Hudson Yards, what, what many people would have liked to see, is some of that momentum and energy spill over into some of the neighboring blocks there, talking about you know, 8th, 9th, 10th Avenue. Uh, I don't think that that momentum has spilled over enough to, to support those neighborhoods that you, are struggling. Do you believe that there are enough amenities in the neighborhood to take care of the people who are working and living in the neighborhood? Um, I think it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I think right now there are some challenges uh, going up and down 8th, 9th, and 10th Avenue. Um, <clears throat> police presence has to be strong, and, and the mayor's got to be um, you know, vigilant about making sure that the quality of life is not diminished in those areas. Inside the complex of Hudson Yards, I think it's, uh, it's very pleasant, but I think you know, once you go a block south or north of it, um, you've know, it, you, you got to be careful. Okay, with, with regard to the Grand Central neighborhood, where is the best opportunity for a tenant to get a, a low rent, good concession, a good good package in this market? You know, I think it's a similar question to where's the best place to get a suit. You know, it depends what someone's looking for, what kind of size they are, what kind of attention they need. But each each tenant's got their own requirements. I think you know, big institutional level uh, tenants can see opportunities in buildings that are at a inflection point right now with with their future that may need to redevelop themselves. So you could probably negotiate for some great amenities or some great upgrades in the building. I think boutique tenants have a, a great pick of buildings that have presented themselves as great boutique options with divided floors or maybe some amenities that wouldn't necessarily be available to smaller tenants. And if you can um, fit into a secondhand custom-made suit, you know, a sublease can also be a great option sometimes for tenants who may be dealing with a company that's just looking to get the space off their books and really take whatever write-downs necessary for the first person that comes to the door. What do you think of the conversions of these office buildings into residential office, residential rentals? So I, I think for, you know, the, the, the initial talk about it, I think, was really like a, a stall tactics for people to buy some time on, you know, maybe some options that they had. But I think what's become clear is that very few buildings fit the bill for actually being convertible in an economical way. Um, you know, the ones that have have been taken down, you know, uh, Silverstein and uh, has done a couple of those um, downtown, uh, along with the, the Rudins and the Gorals are, are working on similar projects. Um, I just don't think a lot of the pro- a lot of the projects are necessarily economical yet. The buildings are not trading for cheap enough for their highest and best use to be residential after it's all said and done with all the money that needs to go into them. So if, if I'm a small tenant, what type of deal can I get? Can I get a couple of months concession? What kind of build out and so on? Yeah, so I mean, depends on on the building. Each building is is in a different place. So if you're in a uh, <clears throat> in a building that has more vacancy, uh, obviously the concessions would be greater. And if the landlord's in a position to actually um, transact, many landlords right now who have bought their buildings within, let's just say, the last ten years are a little bit stuck. Um, this is a very capital intensive business. It requires a lot of capital to make deals many times, and don't necessarily have that uh, capital capacity to to transact. Uh, you, you go into the garment district, you could do deals around $30 a foot with uh, maybe a month free per year with a new installation. Uh, you move up to Grand Central, uh, you can talk about value space on a direct basis, maybe $55 all the way up to 
you know, 70 bucks a foot for, for quality space. So it really depends on what market you're in and uh, what you're looking for and what you need and, and what, you, what you can live with. What about nonprofits searching for space? So we've done a, actually a big deal for a nonprofit. What we've seen, uh, a lot of the larger requirements in a nonprofit have a facility use married to it. It's not necessarily straight office. A lot of the nonprofits that we've been speaking to uh, probably lag somewhat in terms of re- return to the office with their employees. But we uh, recently finished up a $40,000 square foot uh, nonprofit deal um, that's partially clinical use uh, as well as office use. Okay. With regard to the return to office, what percentage of people would you say are back in the office? It depends who, uh, you know, it depends who, whose agenda is, is being pushed. Uh, I, I think, you know, the numbers are, um, are really dependent on what your reference point is. You know, I think a lot of the castle data has uh, a lot of people have complaints about the castle data. What, what are you comparing that to or, you know, what were the pre-COVID numbers on, on a daily basis? I, I think it really it really varies. It's hard to say, but whatever you're measuring, I think there's been an up, uh, an increase probably since uh, the beginning of 2022 Whatever objective measure you're using to measure that, I think there's probably been a steady increase in uh, in most accounts. And you would say today, probably people are working at least four days a week in the office. I'm in the office five days a week. I see less people in on Friday, but um, you know, I think uh, between th- a lot of people have gone from three to four. I think there's probably more people working four days a week now um, than uh, any time since uh, I guess uh, COVID. Okay, in conclusion, what do you expect for 2024 in the office leasing world? So I think we're starting to see price discovery. Um, price discovery on leasing is probably starting to start about a year, a year and a half ago. Um, as lenders and landlords start to digest this, I think, and interest rates have kind of gone up. I know people have said that they're going to start to freeze or come down a little bit. But I think we're going to start to see price discovery on asset values. We've already had price discovery on leasing in many cases. And uh, the next step is really price discovery on asset values, which is going to ultimately start forcing lenders and and, uh, owners to really start making some difficult decisions in some cases about the future of their assets and, and what they're planning to do. I'd like to thank Ben Blumenthal for being here, and I'll see you next week. My pleasure. Thank you.